And now, coming to you from an undisclosed location. It's the Novos Ordo Watch Tradcast. You've got to be kidding. You can't make the stuff up. Greetings, everyone. It is Tratcast episode number six, and we hope to cover a lot on this show because a lot is going on. Let's start first with a quick review of some recent news items. As always, all of the things we mention here you can find in our collection of links that we publish together with each Tratcast episode at tratcast.org. Tratcast. The Vatican has appointed Belgian Bogus Ordo Bishop Johann Bonny to the October Synod on the Family. A uh, big surprise there, as uh, Bonnie has publicly come out against Catholic, even Novus Ordo, teaching on homosexuality and has publicly asked that the church accept sodomite unions. Just the kind of guy you'd want at your family senate, of course. So great job there, Francis. Then, uh, oh yeah, happy Ramadan. Okay. The Vatican has released its annual message to Muslims for the fasting month of Ramadan. Cardinal, so-called Torin, sent a message of nine paragraphs that, of course, do not mention Jesus Christ. And um, look, I'm not going to read this, okay? It's the usual claptrap that we've come to expect from these people. It assumes Catholics and Muslims worship the same God, which, of course, is not true, uh, because Allah is not the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and so, if you really want to read the Vatican's message, we have the link for you on the Tradcast homepage, episode 6. Oh, and speaking of non-Christians and Cardinal Torin, uh, the latter, who is the modernist Vatican's head of the Pontifical Council for Interreligious Dialogue, has stated, and I quote, We are all pilgrims, and I see this Buddhist-Catholic dialogue as a part of our ongoing quest to grasp the mystery of our lives and the ultimate truth. According to a saying from the Desert Father, a brother went to see Abba Moses and begged him for a word. The old man said, go and sit in your cell, and your cell will teach you everything. The cell is a metaphor for the inner cell of the human heart, where one discovers the mystery of oneself and of God or the Dharma, unquote. Okay, I think we'll stop right there because I doubt you can take any more of it, and I know I can't. So uh, Mr. Torin is uh, looking for ultimate truth with the Buddhists. Yeah, too bad he never heard of uh, the words of our Lord, such as, I am the way and the truth and the life. No man cometh to the Father but by me. That's John 14, 6. And, of course, St. Paul speaks of the church as, quote, the pillar and ground of the truth, unquote, 1 Timothy 3.15. Yep, it really is just too bad. The apostasy of the Vatican II Church is so flagrant at this point that even a cursory reading of the New Testament immediately exposes it for what it is. These people just aren't Catholics. But now let's take a quick look at a few things Pope Francis has recently said, and for that we have created a cool new jingle. Take a listen. From the Jorge's mouth.
<laughs> That's right. From the Jorge's mouth, from Jorge Bergoglio's modernist lips, straight to your ears. Though sometimes this comes paraphrased from Vatican Radio because the rambling in his morning liturgies is often so bad that the only way they can put together a coherent summary is to paraphrase what he said with occasional quotes. But here we go. June 9th, from Vatican Radio, the headline, Pope Francis, don't weaken or water down Christian identity. Now, who would do that? Like, by means of ecumenism or interreligious dialogue or praying with Muslims or something, right? Or by hiding the crucifix from the Jews, for example. Who would do such a thing? Francis? No. Anyway, we've got the link for you if you want to read that whole story. Then uh, June 21st, a brilliant Francis denounces weapons and those who make them as not Christian. I wonder how the Swiss Guard feels about that. Hmm. Jimmy Aiken, of course, ran to Francis's defense on this, uh, but this time even he had real trouble. Mm -hmm. Yep, we've got uh, the link to that as well. June 23rd. Now, that was awesome. Francis sends out a tweet declaring, quote, God's love is free. He asks for nothing in return. All he wants is for his love to be accepted, unquote. Now, that's it, right? Nothing in return, guys. Just a quick, hey, cool, thanks. Of course, what God demands in return is that we give him 100%. Luke 10, 27, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with thy whole heart and with thy whole soul and with all thy strength and with all thy mind and thy neighbor as thyself. Matthew 5, 48, be you therefore perfect as also your heavenly father is perfect. And Matthew 10, 37, he that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me and he that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. I don't know about you, but that uh, doesn't sound to me like uh, nothing in return. Then uh, we have another interesting story. June 24th, Francis exhorts Buddhists to convert to Christ and reject their pagan idolatry if they wish to be saved. Just kidding. Of course, he did no such thing. Uh, instead, he confirmed them in their errors, as always, and he talked about, you know, the usual fraternity, dialogue, friendship, peace, whatever. Oh, and then he accepted a, quote-unquote, Buddhist blessing. Yes, yeah, it was some sort of prayer shawl or something. We have the video for you uh, on the Tradcast homepage where you can hear Francis verbatim uh, in case you care to, and you can uh, see him uh, happily accept that uh, Buddhist blessing. And then finally, June 25th, and now this is my personal favorite. Um, in his daily stream of consciousness homily, Francis denounced, are you ready for this? Worldly pseudo-pastors who talk too much. Yeah, the, the, the guy is amazing. He's priceless. Uh, first warning as a false prophets, Francis uh, then went ahead and denounced pseudo-pastors, the, uh, quote, worldly pastors or Christians also who talk too much. They are afraid of silence. Maybe they do too much, unquote. I mean, you can't make this stuff up, people. You know, if, if hypocrisy could prolong your life, um, Francis would be immortal, Okay. Let's face it, if there is one man on earth who fits this description perfectly, it's him. He's a false prophet, a false shepherd, who is constantly busy doing things and who loves to hear himself talk and never shuts up. Now, to be clear, though, we're not saying that Francis is the false prophet prophesied in Holy Scripture in, in Apocalypse 19.20, for example. We're not saying he's the false prophet. But, but if he isn't, then the real false prophet may want to consider suing him for impersonation. Yeah. Unbelievable. All right, so much for Francis. Now let's shift gears for a moment and have a look at the blogosphere and the Twitterverse and see what's new there. Tradcast. One of the most popular bloggers in the semi-traditionalist camp is currently Louis Varecchio. 
Like his ideological confreres, he's trying to square the circle by exposing the apostasy of Francis, while at the same time maintaining he's the vicar of Christ and visible head of the church. So he recently published a blog post entitled, The Church Will Doubt as Peter Doubted, which is an alleged quote from Cardinal Pacelli to Count Enrico Galeazzi in uh, 1931. Yeah, so that was, uh, Cardinal Pacelli made this prediction eight years before he became Pope Pius XII. Now, Verecchio uses this quote to advance his manifestly uncatholic and anti-traditional idea that the Catholic Church can doubt the, the faith, can, can become unfaithful to her divine spouse, and can produce heretics and apostates that are nevertheless somehow valid shepherds in the Church who must then be resisted. So, a few things to say about that. First, let's note that Verecchio is being quite sloppy here, and, th and that is a common problem with so many semi-trad bloggers. Uh, Mundabur is another one, we'll mention him later. A lot of the theological ideas ultimately come not from a text or manual of sacred theology written by real theologians before Vatican II, but from some indult or SSPX propaganda work such as a book by Michael Davies. Um, also their own interpretation of scripture or their own um, reading of papal encyclicals. And um, that's a real shame because regardless of the intentions behind such people's ideas, a lot of them are seriously flawed. A lot of the ideas are seriously flawed and rely on premises that have been custom-tailored to arrive at a particular desired conclusion. So anyway, Verecchio uh, analyzes the statement of Cardinal Pacelli about the church doubting as Peter doubted, not using real Catholic theology, but simply doing his own biblical research and exegesis while ignoring, and that's the important point, while ignoring and contradicting what Catholic theology says about the nature of the church, the nature of heresy, the loss of authority that comes with manifest heresy, and, and so on. In fact, Verecchio doesn't even provide a citation for this quote from Cardinal Pacelli, which is unfortunate, especially if you're going to use it to bolster an idea that is contradicted by Catholic teaching. Now, the ultimate source for this quote is a book written in French by Monsignor Georges Roche entitled Pidus devant l'histoire, Pius XII before history. At least that is the only citation that is ever given if one is given. I believe it's pages 52 and 53 of that book. Now, what I mean is that the Catholic Church cannot doubt the faith or the divinity of Christ in the way Verecchio means. Now, if Cardinal Pacelli truly said this, and I believe he did, and I'm pretty sure we've, we've used this quote ourselves before on Novus Ordo Watch, and I have no reason to believe that this quote is not authentic or that it's not accurate, then obviously, if it can be understood in more than one way, and one way is orthodox while the other is not, and we don't have a lot of further context, then we have to read it in the orthodox sense, because Cardinal Pacelli was not exactly a modernist. Now, doubting the faith and doubting dogma is heresy. Okay? That, that's actually part of the definition of heresy, which is any denial or doubt of Catholic dogma. The reason why doubt is morally equivalent to denial is that in both cases do you refuse to believe what you have an obligation to believe. So the church cannot doubt the faith. That would mean the church has defected. So probably what Cardinal Pacelli meant was that a large number of people who are currently, well, then in 1931 when he uttered it, who were then part of the church would fall away. Okay? The majority of that great mass of people making up the Catholic Church would doubt and fall away. The church, qua church, cannot doubt because the church is infallible and indefectible. She's the pillar and ground of truth, as we've already seen. And against the church, the gates of hell cannot prevail. And, of course, that is taught in Matthew 16, 18. But... What's also flawed is not just Verecchio's understanding of the quote, but also the fact that he uses such a quote in theological discourse to begin with. Because not only is he relying for this quote on an anecdote, but Catholics are also in no wise bound to believe what Carl Pacelli said there, that it has any truth or value to it. Likewise, 
Um, Varecchio goes on to quote Our Lady of Fatima. And again, he's turning to a private revelation for furthering his false theological conclusion. Now, don't get me wrong. Of course we believe in Our Lady of Fatima. Okay? The Church has judged the apparitions at Fatima worthy of belief. However, no Catholic is required to believe in Fatima under pain of sin. Okay? And while you can certainly use private predictions and revelations in support of an already orthodox thesis, and we ourselves have done this numerous times in the past, you cannot use such private revelations to advance a thesis that is at odds with Catholic teaching, and that is exactly what Varecchio is doing. So, what about doubting as Peter doubted? Actually, St. Peter did not doubt after the resurrection, which is when he first became Pope. See, Varecchio is trying to force the pre-papal Simon Peter into Pope St. Peter and then say, see, just like Pope St. Peter doubted, so is Pope Francis doubting now. But Simon Peter's doubt was during a time of revelation, before Pentecost and before the resurrection, and before being raised to the Supreme Pontificate by our Lord himself. Don't believe it? Well, look it up for yourself. The First Vatican Council taught, quote, And upon Simon Peter alone, Jesus, after his resurrection, conferred the jurisdiction of the highest pastor and rector over his entire fold, saying, Feed my lambs, feed my sheep. John 21, 15 and following. Unquote. And that comes from the First Vatican Council, Dogmatic Constitution, Pastor Eternus, and it is referenced as Denzinger, 1822. You can look it up in uh, the Denzinger Collection, number 1822, if you still don't believe me. So no, St. Peter never doubted any dogma of the faith once he had become Pope. Francis, on the other hand, denies and doubts dogmas left and right. Our website is full of examples. Uh, you can go to novusordowatch.org and see for yourself. And Varecchio tries to make the two equivalent with the desired result, as always, that Francis is a true pope, even though we know he is a heretic and not a Catholic. Now, the big irony of Varecchio's blog post comes at the end, where he states, quote, Apart from a solid embrace of the divine life of Jesus Christ, the Church is imagined to be and is treated and practiced as but a human organism an organization with a mission that is earthbound, focusing on man's temporal needs and his natural ends, to the near exclusion of his spiritual needs and his supernatural ends, unquote. But here's the irony. That is exactly the kind of church that Varecchio is proposing, right? He's, he's saying that we have a church, a Catholic church, that has no faith, that has lost the faith, that does not profess the faith, that has a pope a pope without faith, and that has a hierarchy that isn't Catholic. Yeah, well, that church really is just a human organism with an earthbound mission. Louis, wake up. You cannot defeat modernism with more modernism. All right, so much for the blogosphere. Now on to the Twitterverse. Uh, one objection to Sedevacandism that has received renewed attention as of late is the objection that if Sedevacandism is true and the Vatican II Church is not the Catholic Church and Francis is not the Pope, then the Catholic Church has defected, then the gates of hell have prevailed, which is impossible. And that is a common objection. And now that Bergoglio is so clearly exposed as a heretic and an apostate, it is of great importance that we give it renewed attention and refute it once more. So to do that, we plan on publishing a lengthier blog post or an article in the near future, maybe even dedicate a separate uh, tradcast to it. Um, but we will, in our article or blog post, uh, provide all the necessary documentation, all the relevant quotes, so you can verify these things for yourself. Okay, but for right now... Let's just review some basics. We know by divine faith in God's revelation that it is impossible for the Catholic Church to defect and for the gates of hell to prevail, right? Therefore, since the Sedevacantist and the semi-traditionalist resistance position are mutually exclusive, 
and if one is false, the other must necessarily be true. Only one of the two positions does not contradict the divine promise of indefectibility. So what we will do, we won't do it here now, but in that article we will have up in the near future, what we will do is demonstrate from church teaching what is meant by indefectibility and related attributes of the church, and then we will apply these teachings to the semi-traditionalist scenario, and we will apply them also to the Sedevacantus scenario. And then we will see just which one of the two is compatible with the Catholic teaching. All right, that is how something like this must be done. Trapcast. Anyway, we've covered a lot already. It's time to take a quick break. In the next segment, we'll talk about two things. The Supreme Court's decision on so-called gay marriage, and we'll look at the semi-traditionalist reaction to Francis's encyclical Laudato Si on the environment. Don't go away. Tradcast. Ignore this podcast at your own risk. Tradcast is a production of NovusOrtoWatch.org. We watch the Vatican II Church so you don't have to. Go to NovusOrtoWatch.org, NovusOrtoWatch.org, and see for yourself that the Vatican II Church is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. following segment contains content that is not suitable for children. Listener discretion is advised. And now for segment number two in this sixth episode of Tradcast. By the way, Tratcast is free of charge and always will be. However, it is not free to produce, so if you'd like to contribute, you're welcome to do so at Tratcast.org. Most of this second segment will be on Francis's eco-encyclical, but before we get there, let's briefly talk about the quote-unquote gay marriage decision that has just recently been handed down by Club Ginsburg, um, otherwise known as the Supreme Court of the United Gays, of, of, of the United States. Folks, this decision, which strikes down all states' prohibitions against civil marriages between sodomite partners, was entirely expected because it follows from the principles that have long been governing our society. The supposed gay marriage is simply the latest inference to be drawn from the sacred cow, the golden calf, of contraception. Yes, contraception. What does that have to do with anything? Well, quite simply, contraception is what divorces the sexual act from its procreative purpose. It takes procreation out of the picture, or at least reduces it to secondary status, and makes pleasure and unity between the spouses the first and most important aspect to which procreation is subordinated. But if that is the case, if the primary purpose of the sexual act is not procreation but love or pleasure or something else, then there is no reason to say that marriage can only be between a man and a woman, or only between two people, or only between two who are not related, and, and so on. You get the idea. So, but since contraception is untouchable, it is the sacred cow of both liberals and so-called conservatives. Yes, it is. That which then follows logically, and with necessity, must now be embraced. And that, at this point, at this stage in the game, is so-called gay marriage. And it, it took so long, and it took until now, for that to happen, because until the sexual revolution in the 1960s, most people were decent enough to not draw the logical conclusion. 
but logical it is. And now we live in a world that is so sexualized and so devoid of adherence to the natural law that the resistance to indecency is all but gone. And since practically no one is willing to slaughter the sacred cow of contraception, they have no choice but to embrace the latest sexual aberration. If sex is ultimately or primarily for pleasure, then how can you forbid this type of sex between consenting adults but not that one? Bingo. That's why we are where we are, and it will get worse. Uh, Bishop Donald Sanborn has written about this in his May 2015 newsletter from Most Holy Trinity Seminary, and uh, we're linking to that on our homepage also at uh, tradcast.org. His Excellency explains in detail why this is simply the latest outcome of the rejection of the social kingship of Christ. It's a very good newsletter. You'll want to read it. If you want to understand what is happening to our world, our society, and why things are getting so bad, and if you're wondering where it's all going, it is absolutely imperative that you have a good look at the history of Christendom in the world. All of this makes sense, really, all of it. We are but in a particular stage of the history of Christendom, no doubt towards the end, uh, but a stage where the way is being paved, however slowly, for the manifestation of the Antichrist. What used to be Western Christian society in the Middle Ages has been gradually turned into its very opposite, beginning with the decline of the Middle Ages, and then the Renaissance period, and the Protestant Reformation, French Revolution, and so forth. There is a video series on this vitally important topic by Bishop Sanborn in which he explains the history of Christendom, beginning with the Edict of Milan in the 4th century when Christianity was first publicly permitted throughout the Roman Empire, and ending in our present day. Now, to my knowledge, the video series has not yet finished, but three out of the four talks have been recorded so far and are available for you to watch. Um, the current series of talks ends in 1788-89 on the eve of the French Revolution. We are putting the links to the talks on our Tradcast 006 show page at tradcast.org. And you can get them either by getting a subscription to the True Restoration Media website, or you can purchase them individually for a small fee. It's money well spent. And by the way, no, we do not make a commission on this. It is strictly for your benefit. All right? So we're, we're not trying to sell you something. We're trying to help you understand what is going on. And, you know, videos like that are simply not free to produce and uh, certainly not free to distribute and host and so forth. And that's why they have to charge um, a reasonable fee. And honestly, this, this video series on the history of Christendom with Bishop Sanborn, it's priceless. Okay, it will help you understand why we are where we are, how we got to where we are, and where it's all going. Okay, it will, it will help you be prepared for what's coming down the pike in the future. And uh, that will then knowing that ahead of time is going to help you respond uh, appropriately. So you will understand the importance of history of what went before and how it is influencing and shaping our Western world today. So really, I, I can't recommend it too much. But now, uh, finally, a look at the, at, the <laughs> at the encyclical Francis published on June 18th, entitled Laudato Si, on care for our common home. And we actually have a nice theme song for this one, uh, perfect to create an atmosphere of ecological apocalypse. Enough of that. Well, come on, you, you've you've got to be you've got to be able to have a little bit of fun here, okay? I mean, things are are bad enough as they are. You got to at least uh, 
You know, I only think that the worst thing you can do about this false church in the Vatican that pretends to be the Catholic Church is to take it seriously, because that's what is giving it credibility. You know, if everybody laughed at, say, Cardinal Dolan's uh, claim to being a an archbishop and a cardinal of the Holy Roman Catholic Church, then he really wouldn't have much power, you know. Um, anyway, Laudato Si, Praise Be, is the title of Francis's encyclical. It's his second. And no, don't worry, we're not going to summarize the document. That would take at least eight hours. Uh, we're not even going to read it. Okay. Um, well, sorry, but we've got better things to do than to read through 246 paragraphs of naturalist humanist claptrap about climate change while the whole world is drowning in apostasy, heresy, impiety, and immorality. Okay. No, so instead, what we'll do here is we'll look at the reaction to Laudato Si, the reaction from the anti-Sedevacantist, semi-traditionalist crowd. You know, the, the ones who scream at the top of their lungs that Francis is the vicar of Christ. Well, now they have a chance to prove that they believe it. First, though, before we go there, a quick recommendation. Assuming that you haven't read Laudato Si either, and that you're not planning on doing this harm to yourself, we recommend you look at a very clever summary a summary into everyday parlance by Donald McClary at a website called The American Catholic. In five different posts, he has published one or two sentence summaries of each of the 246 paragraphs of the encyclical and put them into language you will understand and appreciate and find quite amusing. Yep. So we'll have that in our uh, show page as well as uh, a collection of links. Anyway, the neo-traditionalist reaction to Laudato Si. We have all of the various stories linked on one handy page dedicated entirely to the eco-encyclical, so you can find all of them there. All right, and uh, first and foremost, uh, we're going to uh, talk about Michael Voris. <laughs> That's right. Mm-hmm. Yep, that one, that's right. You see, Michael Voris has figured it out, okay? The encyclical is so bad, and it's all the fault of Francis's evil advisors. That's right. Uh, we have the link up for you for that uh, breaking news report in which Michael Voris blames the advisors because, as you know, when the Vicar of Jesus Christ issues a teaching document, you must first figure out who advised him to know whether to accept it or not. Mm hmm Sure. Bam! We've told you it's Church Disneyland. You know, they call themselves Church Militant, but we, we like to call them Church Disneyland, and this is one of the reasons why. So if Michael Voris is so concerned about these evil wolves surrounding Francis, the innocent lamb, then why doesn't he go into the, the Vatican press conference and ask Lombardi and co., uh, for example, something like, uh, well, since it is obvious that the Holy Father is being advised by evil liberal men who hate the Catholic faith, what is the Holy Father doing to get rid of them? You know, why won't he do that? Well, we guarantee you that I mean, his name, Boris's name, would be all over the news. You know, he'd get plenty of exposure for asking that question. So come on, Michael. Don't let your poor misled pontiff suffer any longer. Defend him from the wolves. Give him a gift subscription to your church Disneyland premium content. But seriously, let's remember who the ghostwriter of this document is. His name is Victor Manuel Fernandez. As we reported in early June, at NoblesOrdoWatch.org, this man actually wrote a book on the art of kissing back in 1995. You may want to sit down for this one. The book is entitled Saname con tu boca, Heal Me with Your Mouth. You can't make this stuff up. Now, Fernandez, well, we really should call him Smoochie. Um, Smoochie is extremely well known to Francis. 
um, we might say he is actually his personal theologian. You see, Smoochie is also from Argentina, and Francis knows him from his time uh, as Archbishop of Buenos Aires there. Uh, in fact, Francis himself appointed Smoochie Archbishop shortly after his election in March of 2013. And uh, when he was still Cardinal Bergoglio, um, he ensured against conservative opposition that uh, Smoochie would become the rector of the Catholic University in Buenos Aires. And we have all of this documented in our post on Fernandez and that book on kissing uh, linked at tradcast.org. So sorry, Michael Voris, but uh, blaming this on Francis' advisors is not really going to work. Francis obviously knows who he surrounds himself with and, you know, he could choose other people if he wanted. Okay, so Michael Voris, my advice to you, don't treat your audience like a bunch of nincompoops, all right? Besides, it's not working anyway. For example, take uh, Nicholas Frankovich. He uh, writes for the National Review. And uh, in a blog post entitled Criticizing Catholic Critics of Laudato Si, when loyalty to the Pope shades into double-mindedness, this uh, Mr. Frankovich says the following, quote, A tacit rule among some conservative Catholic writers is to knock Pope Francis by going after prelates who are seen to be especially aligned with him. Cardinals Marx, Casper, Rodriguez Mardiaga, et al., it is thought that to speak about the Bishop of Rome with the same bluntness would be impolitic, and it would be. The price of being politic in this case, however, is double-mindedness. You already know this argument by heart. The Francis of progressive platitudes is a media construct, and if you attend carefully to the whole of his spoken and written messages, you will see that he is a powerfully orthodox and traditional Catholic. I try to believe it. I sympathize to some extent with those who persist in that effort, but increasingly it comes off as special pleading. Unquote. Are you listening, Michael Voris? Or are you choosing to stay in Disneyland? Tradcast. Let's look at another semi-trad internet personality, the anonymous English blogger known as Mundabor. Mundabur always seems to be in a competition with himself, really, to, to outdo himself in terms of hurling ever greater and uh, more offensive insults at the man he supposedly believes to be the vicar of Jesus Christ on earth. He now says things such as uh, the bride of Christ is being raped and the Pope leads the rapists. He calls Francis pure evil and the encyclical a new age kindergarten. Things like that. And that's not new for him, but he definitely does seem to try to push the envelope more and more uh, the crazier Francis gets and, and the, more this, uh, the longer this drags on. Now, his criticism of Francis is spot on, of course, but you then must conclude that he's not the Pope of the Catholic Church, if you go by Catholic principles, that is. Uh, next on the rundown, Vox Cantoris, a Canadian blogger by the name of David Domet. He's uh, very charitable in his approach uh, to the encyclical, but uh, he likewise condemns it. And um, again, this uh, condemnation, of course, is entirely justified, uh, you know, but we're dealing here with people who supposedly believe that Francis is the vicar of Christ and not just the village idiot from across the street. Oh, uh, oh, yeah, my personal favorite, Brother Alexis Bugnolo from the Franciscan Archive. He actually published his own counter-encyclical, calling it the encyclical which needs to be written against the errors of environmentalism. Uh, hey, Brother Alexis, I've got some advice for you. When the Vicar of Christ is speaking, you may want to listen and shut up. Okay? Gosh. Uh, then we have two reactions from The Remnant. Uh, one by Chris Jackson. Uh, his piece is entitled, Why I'm Disregarding Laudato Si, and You Should Too. <laughs> That's always great, uh, telling the world that uh, what the Vicar of Christ teaches ought to be ignored, and instead people should listen to your blog post. So much for the first C is judged by no one. 
Yeah, well, that would have gone really well with uh, St. Pius X, I'm sure. Now, in this post, uh, Jackson mocks Novus Ordo pundits, and rightly so, of course, for acting as the quasi-official interpreters of what the Pope really meant. And uh, he uses a funny meme to underscore that, okay? The meme shows a little boy opening a padded envelope, and the boy says, Finally, my Laudato Si decodering. And that's amusing indeed, but the joke is actually on the remnant here, because apparently Jackson was not aware that it was his fellow remnant columnist, Brian McCall, who called for exactly that, in all seriousness, a decoder to decipher the encyclicals of Benedict XVI. You know, that was uh, back in the day of the great restoration of tradition that the remnant was telling everyone uh, was happening back then. If you don't believe it, um, uh, here's a quote from uh, McCall's article back then, uh, posted on the September 9th, 2009. The article is called Caritas in Veritate on Further Reflection. McCall says the following, and this is a quote. My opinion is that this rupture of language has been intentional on the part of some in the church so as to create this untrue impression that truths have changed. Often the novel language echoes the ambiguous phraseology of modern anthropology, sociology, psychology, and liberal political rhetoric. The choice to continue use of this modern language undermines, in my opinion, the Holy Father's praiseworthy reaffirmation of perennial truths contained in the encyclical, truths which badly need not only reaffirmation, but clarity in our time. The clear statement that current teaching is not a rupture with the past is undermined by expressing these truths, at least in part, in novel post-conciliar language. The consequence of this continued linguistic policy is that one needs to approach the encyclical like a decoder. The Holy Father has told us that he is teaching the same apostolic tradition, the same doctrine as pre-conciliar teaching. We must therefore read the confusing language in light of tradition and translate the new ambiguous language into the traditional language of the church. There is insufficient time to provide a complete codebook of language for the encyclical, but here is my attempt at translating some of the major phrases used by the Holy Father. Unquote. Bam! You can't make this stuff up. See the double standard here. In 2009, Benedict XVI was at the helm of the uh, Novus Order Church, and so the decoder ring was all fine and good. But now it's the hippie Francis, and now the neo-Catholics are blamed for doing the same thing that the remnant did a mere six years back. So, like we've been saying, this is all agenda-driven more than anything else. All right? This is the remnant for you. Anyway, on to Chris Ferreira, also of the remnant. He called the encyclical a 185-page book-length excuse to tie the church's credibility to eco-fascism and the global warming scam. He also called it a gargantuan platypus of a document before denouncing its contents, and rightly so, of course. Uh, but then, uh, you know, we're not the ones who think the apostate who is pushing this drivel is actually the vicar of Christ, whose faith shall not fail. Diabolical disorientation. Uh, then uh, John Veneri. He is the editor of Catholic Family News. Uh, he released a five-minute video in which he mocks the environmentalist nonsense of Francis and even says that he cannot call this document an encyclical. He cannot accept it as a magisterial document and thinks it is actually an embarrassment. Well, sorry, Mr. Veneri, but if Francis is Pope, then you don't get to say that, okay? You can't have your Pope and beat him, too. If he's the Pope, as you so stubbornly insist, then start treating him like one. If he's the Pope, then when he speaks, you listen. You know, Pope Leo XIII had something to say about journalists taking it upon themselves to correct bishops in public. We've published uh, two of his uh, very much unknown apostolic letters in the 1880s. And, uh, of course, we'll link to these again. Uh, but here's a very good quote uh, from His Holiness, Leo XIII. Quote, 
the task pertaining to them, meaning to the journalists, in all the things that concern religion and that are closely connected to the action of the church in human society is this, to be subject completely in mind and will, just as all the other faithful are, to their own bishops and to the Roman pontiff, to follow and make known their teachings, to be fully and willingly subservient to their influence, and to reverence their precepts and assure that they are respected. He who would act otherwise in such a way that he would serve the aims and interests of those whose spirit and intentions we have reproved in this letter would fail the noble mission he has undertaken. So doing in vain would he boast of attending to the good of the church and helping her cause, no less than someone who would strive to weaken or diminish Catholic truth, or indeed someone who would show himself to be her overly fearful friend." Unquote. And that is a direct quote of Pope Leo XIII of his apostolic letter, Epistola Tua, to the Archbishop of Paris in 1885. And we'll give you the link to the full document. So, um, you know, if you're going to be a traditional Catholic, Mr. Veneri, maybe you should start heeding these words, okay? And if you cannot apply this to Francis, maybe that should tell you something, all right? Pope Pius XII, he taught the following on the Catholics' required submission to papal encyclicals. And this is a quote from the encyclical Humani Generis of 1950, number 20. Listen to this, quote, Nor must it be thought that what is expounded in encyclical letters does not of itself demand consent, since in writing such letters, the popes do not exercise the supreme power of their teaching authority. For these matters are taught with the ordinary teaching authority, of which it is true to say, He who heareth you, heareth me. Luke 10.16. And generally, what is expounded and inculcated in encyclical letters, already for other reasons, pertains to Catholic doctrine. Unquote. Again, Humani Generis, Pope Pius XII. The Catholic theologian Monsignor Gerard van Noort also explains a Catholic's duty of submission to what is taught by the Pope through his so-called authentic magisterium, that is, teaching that is not infallible, but nevertheless binding and authoritative. He says, quote, Theological truths, which the Church's magisterium teaches merely authentically, must be held with a religious assent. And then he goes on to explain what that means. A merely authentic proposal. An authentic teacher that is endowed with real authority in the church means a teacher possessing the right and duty to teach doctrines on faith or morals in such fashion that the subjects are, for that very reason, namely that it proceeds from such a person or group, bound to accept it. All right. And uh, then he goes on to explain what religious assent means. A religious assent means an intellectual assent given out of a religious motive, that is, out of a motive of obedience to the religious authority established, whether directly or indirectly, by Jesus Christ, unquote. And uh, the citation for these quotes is Van Noort's Dogmatic Theology, Volume 3, The Sources of Revelation, 5th edition, 1960, pages 268 and 270, specifically numbers 251 and 252. All right. Last but not least, a brief word on Sandro Magister. He is a veteran Vaticanist, a special Vatican journalist, and has been for, uh, for over 40 years. And so somehow he was able to get the text of the encyclical Laudato Si a few days ahead of its official release. And so he published it in L'Espresso, which is the newspaper he, he writes for. He published it about three days before the Vatican officially released the text. So, um, needless to say, the Vatican wasn't very happy with that, and uh, Francis's press spokesman, uh, Father Federico Lombardi, he punished Magister by revoking his Vatican press credentials. 
okay, for an indefinite period of time. Now, we're not going to get into whether what Magister did was smart or right or wrong, whether it was justifiable, whatever. We're not going to get into that. And, and we're not going to uh, get into Lombardi's response either, whether that was, you know, unduly harsh or proportionate or what have you. No, what really we should be asking is why in the world would Magister do this? What is the benefit of seeing a document three days early that nobody wants to read? Okay, what was he thinking? What was he trying to accomplish by doing this? This, I think, is the real issue, and I haven't seen anybody ask it. Oh, well, anyway, it is time to uh, bring this sixth episode of Tradcast to a close. And I'd like to do that by quoting from an address given by His Holiness, Pope St. Pius X, to priests of the Apostolic Union on November 18, 1912. Now remember, this is St. Pius X speaking. Quote, When one loves the Pope, one does not stop to debate about what he advises or demands, to ask how far the rigorous duty of obedience extends, and to mark the limit of this obligation. When one loves the Pope, one does not object that he has not spoken clearly enough, as if he were obliged to repeat into the ear of each individual his will, so often clearly expressed, not only viva voce, but also by letters and other public documents. One does not call his orders into doubt on the pretext, easily advanced by whoever does not wish to obey, that they emanate not directly from him, but from his entourage." One does not limit the field in which he can and should exercise his will. One does not oppose to the authority of the Pope that of other persons, however learned, who differ in opinion from the Pope. Besides, however great their knowledge, their holiness is wanting, for there can be no holiness where there is disagreement with the Pope. Unquote. This is not an anecdote or hearsay. This quote is printed in the official Acts of the Apostolic See, the Acta Apostolice Sedis, Volume 4 of 1912, page 695. You can look it up. You can find it scanned, uh, available for download on the Vatican website. So, folks, it's time to finally draw the conclusion, the only conclusion that can justify one's resistance to and rejection of Francis. He is not the Vicar of Christ. He is not the Pope of the Catholic Church. This was Tradcast number six. Don't forget to share with as many people as possible on Facebook, on Twitter, by email, however else. And uh, check us out at tradcast.org and novusordowatch.org. Novusordowatch.org. Until next time, God bless you. <laughs>